You are listening to Superman Forever Radio, Episode 6. Look, up in the sky! It's a bird! It's a plane! No, it's SupermanHomePage.com, the number one Superman fan site in the world! SupermanHomePage.com, covering the world of Superman from the 1930s to today. News, reviews, rumors, and reports. SupermanHomePage.com, for all your Superman comics, TV shows, movies, cartoons, radio shows, and more. Everything you ever wanted to know about the man. Man of Steel and more. Superman Homepage.com. And welcome to another exciting episode of Superman Forever Radio. This is the entire world of Superman in easy-to-swallow podcast form. I'm your mild-mannered host, J. David Weeder. Now, this is a big week, and I'm recording this very late on Saturday night, so it'll be posted as soon as I complete it. It's practically a live podcast. Uh, this week actually begins our look at the post-Infinite Crisis Superman books. And I had a couple of messages asking me if the retro review would be back, and yes, it will, next week. Uh, Silver Age books are pricier, so what we're going to do is we'll be looking at them via the uh, Showcase Presents collections. And for what we lose in color, we still gain in the massive amount of stories these collections hold. And once we get through the 60 to 65 episodes that will be needed to, to uh, complete that, we'll also do some more Golden Age retro reviews. And uh, this week ended up just being a scheduling nightmare, so next week we will look back to the Silver Age and I do have some extra time off work this week, so I'm planning on using that time to write and record some extra material. So I'm about an episode ahead of schedule. So let's move the show right along. We have a ton of stuff to talk about with Superman 650 and Action Comics 837. Then later, we compare and contrast the major Superman origins. And this week actually begins Metropolis Idol. So let's kick things off with some news. We're sitting on top of the story of the century here. The directed DVD animated movie adaptation of Grant Morrison Frank Quitely's opus All-Star Superman has now uh, received a release date. It'll actually hit DVD sto- on stores on, and on Blu-ray on February 22nd of 2011. Now the film will run about 75 minutes and features James Denton as Superman, Christina, Christina Hendricks as Lois Lane, and Anthony LaPaglia as Lex Luthor. The DVD extras on the two-disc special edition will include a sneak peek at Green Lantern Emerald Knights, a documentary called Superman Now, and two bonus animated TV episodes chosen by Bruce Timm himself. And uh, I love when they put those old episodes on there because normally it's Batman the Animated Series or uh, Justice League Unlimited, so fantastic. And uh, the Blu-ray will actually include more uh, with the conversation with Grant Morrison. And I wonder how they're going to do that on a, on a PG-13, because I've never seen Grant Morrison not curse in an interview. Uh, there will also be a um, total audio commentary by Grant Morrison and Bruce Timm, which I look forward to hearing, too, and a digital all-star Superman comic book and a digital copy of the film. So look for that on uh, 2 of 2011. And elsewhere, Ben Affleck talked about turning down the director's chair for the Superman reboot in an interview with Deadline.com this week. Affleck said, the one benefit of having done all kinds of movies as an actor is you learn the pros and cons of being tempted to do a really big movie because it costs a lot of money. He went on to add, with Superman, I think they're going to do a great version. Chris Nolan is brilliant, and they've got a great director for it. I'd love to do something like Blade Runner, but a lesson I've learned is not to look at movies based on budget, how much they'll spend on effects, or you know where they'll shoot. Story is, you know what's important and a lot of people have taken this quote to mean that Affleck was not pleased with the story and I think that's actually unfounded It actually sounds more like Affleck was more put off by the pressures of having to do a major big budget movie which Nolan and Zack Snyder are both used to although ironically Chris Nolan has apparently left the fate of the new Superman movie in Zack Snyder's hands Nolan's wife Emma Thomas confirmed this at a recent event to promote Inception's DVD release So for those of us that wondered how the two would work together, because they both seem uh, 
I don't want to say egotistical, but precise. You know, they have their methods. Um, now we have our answer. Uh, Nolan has basically developed a story with Goyer, kind of uh, got things moving, and now Snyder is in the captain's chair. And uh, Nolan was also busy denying the rumor that Heath Ledger's Joker would appear in The Dark Knight Rises via cutscenes from The Dark Knight. And unfortunately, nobody has refuted the CGI-enhanced Superman. So uh, keep your fingers crossed. But uh, another piece of news on the movie, Hans Zimmer confirmed that he's scoring the new movie. And I thought that was really odd because we're not really into pre-production. Zack Snyder's finishing up Sucker Punch before he even really dives in full force. So yet we have a composer. That's a little weird, maybe putting the cart before the horse, but Hans Zimmer's done some great music, specifically The Dark Knight. So that should actually be great. So that's where, you know, the state of things. Um, the Superman cover art I mentioned, uh, I don't believe it was last episode or episode before, the Jerry Robinson was selling. Uh, it did not meet its reserve, but it hit about $400,000 in bids. And had it sold, that would have been a record for comic art. But neither that nor the Joker popping out of the uh, jack-in-the-box with the guns hit that reserve, so neither one technically sold. So there's that. And speaking of auctions, uh, Brandon Routh's Superman Returns outfit will actually be included in a, a Hollywood auction to be held later this month, along with Johnny Depp's Edward Scissorhands costume. And they'll actually go on sale at a Profiles in History sale on December 17th and 18th. And the high-priced item at the auction looks like it's actually going to be the original movie poster from the 1933 version of The Invisible Man, which is expected to fetch up to $200,000. If you look at Harrison Ford's, uh, you can also get Harrison Ford's heavily annotated Raiders of the Lost Ark script. And James Cagney's tap-dancing shoes of Bela Lugosi's Igor costume from Son of Frankenstein. (laughs) So look for that on sale December 17th and 18th if you've got uh, some spare cash. I'm just saying it's not too late to get me a Christmas present. So without further ado, that's what's happening in the world of Superman. Let's take uh, take a quick moment and do our top five for this week. And this week's top five, directly from the home office in the break room of the soda Kohler plant, are the top five ways that Superman keeps his spit curl. Because as we know, Superman has quite a quaff on there, and that spit curl is pretty iconic. And uh, certainly, you know, it doesn't happen by accident. So let's start with the top five. The number five way that Superman keeps his spit curl is... Kryptonian spit. Number four, duct tape really does fix everything. Number three, Superman is a Dapper Dan man. Number two, a team of Paul Mitchell certified Kryptonian hairdressers follow soups around and slather it in gel upon each costume change. And the number one way that Superman keeps his spit curl? Soul glow. just a quick uh, note if you're heading to the comic shops this wednesday december 8th 2010 books will not be delayed just like they what they were with the uh, thanksgiving holiday these are the superman books that await you there superboy number two will hit written by jeff lemire with art by pierre gallo and a cover by phil noto with it also a uh, one in ten incentive variant cover by Guillaume march and this issue has connor facing off against poison ivy set you back about two dollars and 99 cents also in trade is Superman, Batman, Big Noise, written by Joe Kelly, art and cover by Adrian Syaf, and this reprints Superman, Batman issues number 64, and then 68 through 71. Now the trade is 128 pages for $14.99, and that's quite a bargain. So that will be on shelves. And uh, now let's go ahead and begin our reviews, begin our journey at the post-Infinite Crisis Superman era with uh, uh, Superman number 650 and Action Comics number 837. Now, we're beginning with our post-Infinite Crisis journey with the Superman books that hit stands uh, cover dated May of 2006. They would have actually hit around mid-March. 
And before we can really dig into these books, we kind of have to graze upon, very briefly, both Infinite Crisis and 52, just to set the scene, um, why, you know, why this was a different era. Uh, basically, with Infinite Crisis, the relevant bits are Connor Kit died fighting Superboy Prime. Alexander Luthor managed to recreate the multiverse, resulting, bleh, resulting in a new Earth, which is similar to the one we've known for about 20 years, but with major alterations in continuity, which wouldn't really become apparent for quite some time. And at the end of Infinite Crisis, Superman and Earth 2 Superman managed to subdue Superboy Prime by having the Green Lantern planet Mogo move into the system with a red sun. Now, Superboy Prime beat the Earth 2 Superman to death before being imprisoned, and the exposure to the red sunlight robbed our Superman of his powers. Now, 52 was a 52-issue weekly miniseries that filled in the one-year gap between Infinite Crisis and Superman and happened concurrently with some of the books we're going to be covering over the next few weeks. But uh, the relevant bits, uh, kind of, as far as what uh, what hits Superman books really barely touched on our, on our universe. Uh, with Super, Supernova filled the void for a powerless Clark briefly, but that never really came back to being relevant. Now, Lex Luthor announced the Everyman Project, which gave ordinary people superpowers. And meanwhile, Steel, AKA, or John Henry Irons, a.k.a. the guy we know as Steel, he uh, deactivated Natasha's Steel, not Natasha Irons' Steel armor, uh, after an argument about responsibility and her maturity. And, uh denied her you know the chance to go into the everyman project now uh, after uh, encountering luther steel actually began to get steel skin so instead of going into the armor he actually became a man of steel literally and that really caused natasha to become really suspicious and accused him straight out of hypocrisy so she went and enrolled in the everyman project became a luther superhero team infinity inc and uh, once irons uh, john henry irons learned that super with Luthor, could he activate the Everyman Project given abilities at any time? And plus, they expire naturally after about six months. John uh, actually began to go after Luthor himself. And uh, Luthor, meanwhile, was really upset because the scientists kept telling him, you don't qualify for this. It doesn't work on you. And, uh, you know, out of spite, one of the best licks Luthor scenes I can remember happens. Because he deactivates all their powers, so all these superheroes that he's created are falling from the sky on New Year's Eve. Meanwhile, Luthor is on the top of LexCorp Towers on a cell phone talking to somebody. Simply casually says, oh, excuse me, steps about a couple of yards away as one of the other, one of the superheroes crash into that spot and uh, to their death. And, super, and Lex Luthor just resumes his conversation. Very casually, very Lex Luthor. Now, he, Luthor actually does learn that the, you know, the scientists were lying, and he did. He was able to take the treatment and uh, actually used his abilities, uh, basically turned him into Superman. He got Superman's abilities and uh, finds out that Natasha has been spying, went to beat her violently, and uh, luckily I, uh, Steel and the Teen Titans attacked LexCorp and brought Luthor to justice. So that was, you know, kind of where we need to be to set the stage for Superman number 650 and Action Comics number 837, which is the beginning of the post-Infinite Crisis era. Now, the weird thing is this was a major shakeup for, for collectors that had been on the books for a while, not because of the content, but basically from 1991 to early 2005, we had four Superman books, which basically meant a title on the stands every week, and especially with the brief run of the quarterly title. So it literally was weekly. Now, the main books up until this point were Action Comics, Superman Volume 2, Superman the Man of Steel, and The Adventures of Superman. And that short-lived quarterly title was Superman the Man of Tomorrow, but that was gone by the late 90s, early 2000s. Now, the, the trick was that was pulled, where things got confusing, is in 1986 with the Burn reboot, DC wanted a new number one, so they changed the title of Superman Volume 1 to Adventures of Superman, but kept the numbering. And they just started Superman Volume 2 with an all-new number one uh, for that new era. Now, Action Comics retained its numbering. The only time it really threw it off during this period was the brief hiatus after the death and when it went weekly, which really wasn't a Superman era. But uh, Man of Steel arrived in 91, so since then we've gotten used to four books. Now, Man of Steel was also the first one to end in 2005, right before Infinite Crisis began. Now, following Infinite Crisis... 
they wanted to consolidate the books. So Superman Volume 2 was canceled. And uh, Adventures of Superman, they changed the title back to being just Superman and just continued the numbering sequence. So if you're anal retentive like me, this is a nightmare because the question is, do I treat Adventures like a different series? If I do, then that means there's a Volume 1 and a Volume 2 and there's a gap in there. It just drives me crazy. But either way, Superman number 650, which is Volume 1 650, marks the beginning of the post-Infinite Crisis era which has a quote-unquote tweaked continuity. And by tweaked, I mean the changes that were really ambiguous, intentionally so. And we really wouldn't know for a few years if Man of Steel or Birthright were the origins of choice until about 2009. And uh, Jeff Johns actually said it was intentional. Uh, He wanted to leave the continuity open and vague uh, for the whole DC Universe just so writers and artists could tell whatever stories they wanted. So going into Superman 650... It was vague as to what the backstory was, and the issue only confused matters more. Uh, Unlike the Burn era, the post-Infinite Crisis era didn't have the clean slate approach. So it was cherry-picking, and even now, you know, there's still some confusion on which storylines are canon. So let's go ahead and take a look back, and as we go through, you know, you'll see what I mean. So we're looking first at Superman number 650, which is part one of the Up, Up, and Away storyline. The subtitle of this issue is Mortal Men. Now, both of these issues had the exact same crews working on them. Uh, They were both written by Kurt Busiek and Jeff Johns, with uh, Busiek taking uh, second billing in uh, Action Comics 837, and Jeff Johns being primary. But on this one, Kurt Busiek and Jeff Johns were, Kurt Busiek was the primary. Now, art was by Pete Woods on both books, colors by Brad Anderson, letters were done by Rob Lay. The covers were done by Terry and Rachel Dodson with color by Alex Sinclair. And associate editor was Nachi Castro. And the books were edited by Matt Idelson. So this issue opens with the origin being retold. Yet again, Krypton explodes, the ship is sent to Earth, the whole shebang. And uh, as we pull back, we find out it's actually just a movie, a retrospective on Superman being played in the park. And Superman's actually still been missing for a year following Infinite Crisis. And Lois and Clark actually critique the piece while sitting on a blanket when Jimmy happens upon them. Good old Jimmy Olsen. And at first, Jimmy feigns excitement, talking about how they used some of the pictures when the big guy died. And I'm going to get into that in a minute. Earmark that. And uh, actually, it turns out Jimmy just shows his sadness and misses his pals and tells Lois and Clark nobody looks in the sky anymore. Now, Lois and Clark kind of ditch Jimmy, (laughs) awkwardly, and they end up grabbing a pretzel and Lois teases Clark on how they could, you know, the pretzels could affect his waistband now that he's powerless. Well, Monday rolls around, and uh, Lex Luthor is now on the courthouse steps, having been cleared from over 120 criminal charges. Now, this would have been the stuff from Infinite Crisis, which was uh, some of done by Alexander Luthor. And, of course, you know, his presidency and public enemy is going down, and plus the incidents in 52. That's why we covered that a little bit. So we got a little bit of a backstory, which we didn't get while reading this issue in real time. And Lex greets the public in his smug way, only to find that Lois is grilling him. And then he is smacked on the head with a huge rock and ends up gushing blood. And it turns out, to Luther's surprise, the public now hates him. And he is ushered into a limo where, you know, away from the public, where he pulls out a crystal with Kryptonian writing. What? We'll have to get into that a little bit later because then we uh, check back at the Daily Planet and Perry's looking for Clark and who happens to be on top of his assignments. Getting some man-on-the-street interviews that Perry hadn't even had a chance to ask for yet. And one of the rare occasions, Perry pays Clark a compliment on what a great reporter he's been for the last year. I guess when you're not out saving the world, Perry, you can report. And uh, Clark's on uh, working on some exposés on Gang and trying to bring them down. And he's on his way to get uh, an interview with some of the uh, lawyers and a little bit more uh, man-on-the-street interviews to the uh, Luther acquittal when Jimmy pops up and Clark practically tracks, you know, trips over him. Now, Jimmy tries to have a conversation with Clark but finds himself snubbed again. And plus, uh, once Clark leaves, Perry jumps on his case about how Jimmy's been off of his game and not taking some great pictures. And Lois is luckily still Lois. Uh, She meets Clark at the elevator where she mentions conveniently that a research and development startup is trying to use kryptonite as an energy source. 
Well, Clark figures at least, you know, some the scientist whose name is K. Russell Abernathy is using it for something good for once. And as it turns out, Abernathy is being informed that several of his animal test subjects are dead. At that very moment, uh, judging by the animal's green glow in the cage, it's pretty obvious kryptonite may be involved. Now, Abernathy is monologuing to his assistant as a kryptonite laser warms up, focused on a monkey who is uh, shackled to the wall. I don't know how that translates to energy, but uh, okay, run with it, Abernathy. Now, his K-Rad meter, which is actually a, uh, he wears a, it's a vest, and the K-Rad meter is a design piping into it, and it starts going off, which gives that a red glow. And the monkey manages to get free and tamper with the laser, causing a massive green explosion. Now, from the debris, one green-skinned figure gets to his feet, while the other two figures look lay there crispy-crittered. And the figure finds his way to the street by blasting a hole to the surface, where Clark happens to be hailing a cab. And he watches as Mr. Green Jeans, not that Mr. Green Jeans, busts open a liquid nitrogen truck, causing a barrage of ice on the street. And Clark uh, saves an older woman as Abernathy begins uh, shooting kryptonite beams from his eyes. So with this, Clark ducks into an alley, tugs on his glasses, and activates a signal watch. Not the way you thought it was going, was it? <laughs> And Supergirl shows up, makes quick work of Abernathy, putting the kryptonite man down. Just as Kara flies off, a voice calls Clark from an alley, and Clark is dragged into the shadowy alley, shadowy alley where Luthor is waiting, and Luthor tells him, you know, the board of LexCorp is buying him out due to his public image, and he blames Clark's reporting. He threatens to hurt or maim Lois if he does not stop these stories, and then cracks Clark's ribs, knocks him to the ground, beats his face in, and walks away telling him, I always knew you had a glass jaw. And the issue comes to a close with Clark laying in a heap in the middle of the alley. Now here's some strange things with the continuity. On page one, we are treated to, uh, you know, of course, the explosion of Krypton and the ship flying off. But it notes that it happened 68 years ago, which would place it in 1938 based on 2006. Which confuses me. But it always confused me with Superman the movie, too, because Jor-El's like many thousands of years of your Earth years have passed. And I never understood, did Clark hit a wormhole? What happened? So that was one continuity question that really I don't believe has been answered. I have to double check. Now, Jor-El looks, uh, on page two, the picture of Jor-El looks very much like the Jor-El from Birthright. Which kind of begs the question, is Birthright the continuity? Is it still out of continuity? Because briefly, uh, Birthright was considered the origin, very briefly, late in the Burn Era, which would kind of negate the Burn Era, but it was never heavy-handed. You could still take and cherry-pick either one of the origins if you wanted to. And on page four, here's the tricky one. Uh, the screen shows Superman fighting Doomsday and mentions it as his, one of his last great victories before he disappeared a year ago. Now, how much are they retconning out is Lex Luthor Jr. still part of it? Um, we don't. We still don't have that answer incomplete. We don't know how much of the Burn Era is canon and how much it isn't. So essentially, we're still in a state of vacuum even to this day. And it's that whole cherry-picking mentality, which if you just want a good Superman story, does shouldn't really bother you that much. But I like continuity. I like building on it. Even the Silver Age had a little bit of continuity. So... This was a question that really threw me off reading it the first time and even rereading it this time. And uh, page six, where Lois and Clark blow Jimmy off, he's sitting there pouring his heart out about how much, you know, the city is boring now that Superman's gone and how much, uh, you know, nobody looks to the sky. Well, that's uh, Clark and Lois are just like, oh, OK, see you Monday, Jim, and go off to get a pretzel. So that's way out of character. Because even if he's not Superman, Clark would still take a moment to find out what's wrong with Jimmy. Now, on page 10, when Luthor produces the crystal, he mentions that Superboy used it against his duplicate. And I don't remember this. And I went back and tried to find it, but I don't think I have any issue that relates to it. But I believe this may be one of the first occurrences of the crystal technology. And as we'll find out several issues down the road the movie version may be playing more into this than than it did in the burn era. But elsewhere in the Daily Planet uh, scene, 
where uh, Perry is complimenting Clark. It's nice to see the no smoking sign is in the background with an extra sign pasted up except for the chief. So Perry White gets some special treatment. And then page 14, Jimmy gets blown off again by Clark when he's just trying to make some simple conversation about the sports team. I I started wondering if we were going to find Jimmy hanging by his uh, camera strap by the end of this issue. He's getting chewed out by Perry. He's getting blown off by Lois and Clark. And I don't know if, uh, I'm sure Metropolis has a lot of therapists, but uh, Jimmy apparently isn't picking up the phone. And then on his way out on page 16, if you look in the background, there are some newspapers referencing 52, which now doesn't seem as relevant. At the time, 52 was only a few issues in. And, uh, you know, there's a Who is Batwoman uh, cover. Uh, Supernova comes is mentioned just very subtly. And at the time, the, the vagueness was kind of amusing because I wanted to see how 52 played out, and luckily it played out well. But now it's just, wow, that's really self-congratulating. And on page 17, Pete Wood's backgrounds look gorgeous. I love his Metropolis. There's so much detail in the backgrounds. And again, on page 24, they look fantastic. And on page 25, I really like that when uh, the Kryptonite Man punches Kara, he leaves an imprint on her cheek. That glows green and Supergirl really played herself out really well. Um, Clark even complimented how she's come a long way in the year because she does make short work of the kryptonite man handles it like a pro. And this was really a good turning point for Kara uh, as far as when we hit this era, because you really saw not just a confused teenager that's still in there, but you saw her really starting to develop that confident woman that she, we know she'll be. And uh, so I really like that this, you know, he calls on her. And it also harkens back to the Silver Age when Supergirl was his secret weapon. And, um, you know, wrapping it up at um, page 30 and 31, Luther handling his own business. This, you know, really begs the question, is he just more aggressive now after going through prison and everything in Infinite Crisis? Or is he cocky? He thinks he can't be touched now that he's beaten 120 criminal counts? Or is this a look of desperation? You know, his, his board is trying to buy him out. And he is really trying to fight this to try to get back on top. But he's, I don't know. I don't believe Luthor really does his dirty work in the past. It's always been, I pay somebody to do that for me. I wouldn't dare get my hands dirty. And now we're seeing a slightly different side of Luthor. Now, the main villain or the antagonist in this issue was K. Russell Abernathy, who he actually became the fifth kryptonite man in this issue. Now, the first Kryptonite Man was a disguised Lex Luthor back in Action Comics number 249, but a separate version actually first appeared as Kryptonite Kid in Superboy number 83 in September of 1960, and then would reappear as Kryptonite Man in Superman number 299 from May of 1976. Now, he was originally an alien with natural powers of telepathy who flew into a space through a green Kryptonite cloud which made his body so thoroughly infused with kryptonite that he began to emit its deadly radiation from his body, and he glowed green. And he also uh, gained enhanced strength and endurance. Now, the villain would return as an adult to plague Superman multiple times, and the pre-crisis incarnation is probably best known from his appearance in the Alan Moore story, Whatever Happened to the Man of Tomorrow, and he was in the scene which featured Crypto sacrificing himself to protect his masters from, from the villain's radiation. One of the most heart-wrenching scenes I can remember from that story. Because I remember the the text saying, you know, Superman can hear his pet screaming but can't do anything about it. And it was, ugh. <laughs> As a dog lover, you know, I love my dog. My dog's name is Lucy Lane. Kind of, you know, hits you right where you live. Um, anyway, let's move on to post-crisis where that basically gets wiped out. Uh, the post-crisis kryptonite man first appeared in Superman Volume 2, number 43, as a green-skinned clone of Superman, grown by spies with all the basic Kryptonian powers. And then a fourth Kryptonite man appeared in Superman Batman, and this version was really confusing. Apparently, he was created when Captain Atom absorbed the explosive energy from major force and public enemies. And then when Captain Atom went out to destroy the Kryptonite meteor, the energy somehow combined, uh, the Kryptonite energy combined with the remaining energy from major force in Captain Atom to create a sentient energy force. Okay, <laughs> that's odd. Now, after being siphoned from Captain Adam by Toy Man, the energy was able to jump from body to body, taking over the personality and causing the body to release kryptonite radiation. 
And while the Abernathy Kryptonite Man seems to be defeated really easily in this is this issue, expect him to come back and soon. And of course, now we got Action Comics number eight hundred and thirty-seven, which is Up, Up and Away Part Two, Mild Mannered Reporter. And of course, the same crew is working on this. Uh, we open with a newspaper on the ground showing Luthor is bankrupt. And then we then follow our rat into the sewer, where a radio report on how Luthor is being frozen out of his out of Lexcorp plays over the scene. And deep in a sewer layer, which is fun to say, we uh, we find Luthor seeming completely unfazed by this, singing a little Sinatra to himself. When suddenly Superman crashes through the wall, but Superman turns out to be the Toy Man and is Superman the animated series doll slash robot form. And Toy Man took the schematics to the Superman robots from some kid in Tokyo and built a version for him to pilot, but he can't quite get the heat vision to work right. Sounds like Connor. Whoa, awkward. And Luther shows Toy Man the crystal he revealed in Superman in the last issue, Superman 650. And he actually explains that it's a sunstone, a crystal that can store more data than any computer on Earth, which most Superman fans would be aware of. Now, Luther also orders Toy Man to destroy his new toy because Superman has been gone for a year and it's time to forget him. Meanwhile, back at Sullivan Place, Clark nurses his bruises from the end of Superman 650. Lois asks Clark why he didn't fight back, and Clark explains that he ran the article anyway, despite the threats, and that's how we beat him. And we also learn where, you know, there have been a lot of uh, break-ins at LexCorp warehouses, and suspects that Luther may have a contingency plan, and always had underground labs uh, stashed throughout the city, but the lead in the subway system shielded them from his X-ray vision. I may like X-ray vision better. Uh, Clark means to push Luthor into making a mistake, but without his powers, he feels blinds blind but watching a sunset on the balcony clark feels like he may have lost his super senses but gained a sense of being human oh that's precious and um anyway he he moves on to investigate um he follows a tip on some recoveries being done in the subway tunnels with some heavy tech equipment being moved very quietly and uh, he's in the in the tunnels talking to an unknown person on a cell phone mentioning there are 27 unused subway tunnels that seem to be maintained regularly, which is what drew his attention. And as he goes deeper into the tunnels, his cell phone reception drifts in and out. Now, we don't know who's on the cell phone yet. He loses it completely as he happen the cell phone reception happens upon a group of wannabe intergang thugs trying to buy in by using Luthor armor that's stashed in a hidden, a secret storage unit. And, uh, you know, he's uh, quietly creeping around, and of course the cell phone reception comes back just in time to alert the heavily armored thugs to his presence. Now, the thugs try to take Clark out, but backup arrives just in time in the form of Green Lantern and Hawk Girl. Turns out Clark's phone was linked to Hal's ring and Kendra's helmet, respectively. Now, Hawk Girl and Green Lantern take out the thugs and help Clark out of the tunnel. And then we have an awkward shift elsewhere to Luthor standing right in front of the Superman and Superboy memorial, now that Connor's been added to that statue, and uh, just standing there staring at it, when an upgraded Metallo, looking like John Corbett again, not the large steampunk-looking thing, he shows up for a mysterious meeting, which will play out a little deeper down the road, but for right now, all we know is their meeting. Meanwhile, Hawkgirl and Green Lantern drop Clark back at his apartment, where Hal Jordan offers Clark a Green Lantern ring. And that is where the issue ends. That's where the new age of Superman begins without Superman. Odd. Now back on page one, I like the transitions of the scenes with the rat because you do follow it down in there. It's very uh, movie-esque, very cinematic, so I do enjoy that. And in page two, Luthor is humming Fly Me to the Moon while he's working. That's just great. (laughs) Completely oblivious because Luthor always has a plan. Now, this version of Toy Man uh, that appears on page four, the doll-slash-robot version, it's even creepier, perhaps, than the Van Candy, you know, interpretation of Winslow shot. And that character is something that's been developing. I think it was always implied that he was uh, inappropriate, but uh, it's gotten a lot more blatant, especially in the recent issues of Supergirl. Now, on page 13, more great backgrounds. Now, Pete Woods has an odd style with characters, um, it's a little rough, kind of like John Romita, but still tight enough to look sleek. Because unlike Romita, it doesn't look like somebody just inked over his rough pencil pencil sketches. And on page 17, the cell phone going off at the worst time was hilarious. Even better was Clark's facial expression. And Pete Woods does do a great job with those expressions. 
On page 20, you can't help but be psyched out when Hot Girl and Green Lantern are coming to the rescue, looking great. There were some great digital lighting effects in this shot, specifically on, on Hal's ring. And uh, over on page 25, the little detail of candles scattered on uh, Connor's side of the statue, just sparingly. It was nice. It added a layer of sadness to the scene. Because um, at that point, we didn't know that Connor was uh, possibly going to maybe come back. I don't want to spoil anything for those of you that don't know, but... Uh, yeah, I did just mention Superboy number two is coming out. So uh, there you go. Now, I did notice one thing this time that I hadn't. Uh, oh, and the irony of uh, Luthor standing there, uh, given his connection to Connor, you don't really get to see if there's any emotion on his face. Now, Luthor wouldn't show it to the rest of the world, but most of the time before Metallo shows up, his back is to the to the reader. So it's actually interesting. I wonder what was going through his head and what, uh, you know, if he actually had a little bit of mournful thoughts in that area. But uh, also with Metallo on page 27, opening his chest plate to reveal the kryptonite heart. It's actually in the shape of the Superman symbol this time. It opened the way the hinges open. And that gives a really good contrast between the, between the two men of steel. And I'm sure it was intentional. I just happened to say I enjoyed it. And then finally on page 31, this is fantastic. The Green Lantern ring has a, actually has the S-Shield on it. So I, uh, I kind of got excited at the end of this issue. And we'll see next issue how that kind of plays out a little bit. Now, uh, what kind of what kind of Green Lantern would Clark make, really? I mean, he, he I don't know that he's completely without fear because he does worry about Lois. He talks in this issue about, you know, remembering listening to her heartbeat as he fell asleep being surrounded by it. And uh, without his power, normal powers, he's blind. I think there would be a nice learning curve for that. And it could be a fun story to, to uh, you know, continue down. But... I'm kind of bothered by the fact that I don't think Hal has the authority to offer a ring to Clark, and it doesn't say whether the Guardians commission this or not. So I'm actually a little perplexed by that. And I always like when Kendra makes an appearance, and it's nice that they added in the the uh, detail that Carter's still missing. Nobody knows where Carter is at all, a.k.a. Hawkman. Now, overall, the, the issues read pretty well as one story, as I was reading them sequentially. And Wood's art is really passable to good, but not great and phenomenal. I like Pete Woods. I just don't love Peach, Pete Woods. And the Terry and Rachel Dotson covers, those were a treat. You can't ever be mad at Terry Dotson. Uh, but the story itself, it suffers, suffers from its own ambiguity. We know Luther's plotting something, but we don't see any real idea of what it is. So it kind of fails to hold the interest, even with Toy Man and, Sh and Metallo showing up for a brief bit. And Clark not even showing a hint of his powers just got frustrating because this would be, you know, in real time, you know, we're looking at them back to back, but there would be two weeks between the two of them. So not only that, you know, in, in real time, you know, that's a month between issues without Superman being in the book. I just think Superman not being in the book doesn't work. It's like replacing him with Monel or something. Oh, that's awkward. But, uh, you know, when these hit books hit, 52 was still early in its progress, as I mentioned. And Superman Returns was just a couple of months away. And the whole one year later storyline where they basically skipped over what 52 would cover, it was majorly hyped. But these issues, I don't think, really stood up to that hype. Uh, most of the seeds planted in the issues, they do bear fruit later on. And it ends up being, you know, all around a good story. But it just feels like it didn't gel quite quick enough. So the story on both books gets three S shields out of five because it is above average, but not out of the park. And the art also gets a three out of a shield out of five. Once again, it's just a above average story, but doesn't knock it out of the park in the way the event should have. And especially with the status quo being very unclear, it really would take years to be solidified in Secret Origin. And uh, ironically, speaking of Secret Origin, we're going to be comparing that to other origin tellings next up. And next week, you know, Superman number 651 Action Comics number 838, and then we look into Superman Batman number 26.
Superman's origin has been told countless times across 72 years, uh, most recently in Superman Earth-1 and Superman's Secret Origin. But there are really only a handful of actual canon origins across that time, and the first was in Superman number 1, which would really be expounded upon and a lot of additions retroactively. The next major retelling wasn't until The Man of Steel in 1986, which would be followed by Birthright in 2004 and Secret Origin in 2009. Now, each of the four versions differ by the era, but what is the essential elements to Superman's origin? How do these versions really differ? Well, Grant Morrison may have displayed the essentials in his bare-bones version of the origin in 2005's All-Star Superman number 1. In four panels, he gives us the essence of the origin. Uh, first, the Doom Planet. Second, Desperate Scientists. Third, Last Hope. And fourth, Last Kindly Couple. These may be the biggest pillars to the origin of all time, with one of them being perhaps more important than the others. Uh, for example, Doom Planet, uh, the planet Krypton faces destruction, desperate scientists, Jor-El and Lara, they have to face the end. Who are these people and how? why are they trying to save only one? And uh, last hope, Kal-El's journey to Earth. And number four, kindly couple, the Kents finding the baby alien, taking him in and raising, them as a, raising him as their own. Now, using Morrison's basic template, I kind of want to compare and contrast the major origins element by element. So we begin with the doomed planet Krypton. In the original telling, Krypton was a planet of Superman and women. It was straight sci-fi, just like Flash Gordon or Buck Rogers. And for a long time, Krypton's background and culture were really based on whatever the story demanded. It, it was in flux. Now, the destruction's cause uh, of the planet was usually vague and shifted from time to time. Mostly, it implied that either A, in the Golden Age, you know, the planet was just too old, and most of the time there was a radioactive chain reaction, which would be B. And, the, you know, the Silver Age Krypton evolved via the retcons to include landmarks like the Firefalls and Kryptonopolis. Most of the time a character would go back in time or view it on a view screen, and uh, these retcons make up a, a, a shifting of the explanation for Superman's powers. Uh, for example, originally being that race of superpowered beings, it shifted to gaining his strength from lighter gravity of Earth, before finally settling on the yellow sun as the, versus the red sun as the major factor. And the Krypton of the Man of Steel in 1986 was different. Gone was all the over-the-top sci-fi campiness and silliness of the Silver Age, and now we had a structured, dramatically different Krypton that remained consistent fairly well throughout the throughout the 20-year run of the Burn Era. Or I guess it would be a little bit shorter. It would be about 16 to 17 years because uh, Birthright was considered oral canon as of 2005. So it would have been about 19 years. My math is fantastic. Uh, well, Burn's version actually featured a society that worshipped science and disregarded emotions. The normal rules of procreating no longer applied. Babies were developed and effectively hatched from birthing matrixes. And the architecture was a lot more refined. It featured spires and a uniform look to the technology, really slimmed down. You look at things like Kryptonian war suits, it had a lot of jagged edges, a lot of sharp angles. And the backstory was rich to the planet and detailed, especially in the world of Krypton number one through four. And plus, throughout the Superman books, they kept telling, they really told a full story. Uh, this Krypton actually met its end by way of a long-standing terrorist plot that corrupted the planet's core and caused the nuclear chain reaction. Now, Superman Birthright owed a lot of its depiction to the burned Superman, but it really did a good job of uh, amalgamating the modern with the Silver Age looks and some of the, the features. Uh, Burns Krypton featured full body suits draped with robes like togas a little bit, but Wade and Linnell, you know, really went full toga, and they had a slightly Incan Mayan accent to them, with uh, some of these ornate headbands and the collar dresses. And Birthright's Krypton is primarily revealed in flashbacks in history based on Clark's little view screen, plus we see it a little bit later on in uh, Lex Luthor's manifestation of that technology. Where Burns' Krypton had no great pride in symbols, in fact they probably refuted it to some extent, that famous S-Shield that Superman wears was featured prominently as a banner in Wade's Krypton, which shows a sense of pride and a sense of emotion. And the Silver Age Krypton also appreciated symbols, 
as many Kryptonians actually wore a symbol based on their family on their chest. And most Silver Age Kryptonians wore these jumpsuits, kind of like Superman, but they usually had some sort of shoulder pad or collar or something, and they actually included simple headbands based on Hebrew culture. Now, the Krypton of Jeff John's secret origin, it retained the robes. They're a little bit more stately, and they were primarily white. Uh, just like Superman the movie, that's exactly where that Krypton was drawn from. So their world was advanced, just as in all the other incarnations. But the planet looked a little bit more barren and icy, and their structures are very crystalline and sharp, and uh, very, I don't know, for lack of a better word, haphazard. Very clumped up. Now, Burns' Krypton, while it was sleek and didn't have a lot of ornamentation, John's Krypton also matches up with that. And the Silver Age Krypton really just shifted between ours. There was no constant to it. It really wasn't even uncommon to see things like 50s Art Deco homes in the Silver Age, for one example. And the Silver Age technology really differed between stories. We were dealing with an era where technology was developing. So you would uh, range from a large box to a really odd, crude... Uh, handheld device and uh, silver age you know to look at it you know with burns being consistent based on technology and sleek uh, it would almost be like the silver age krypton technology would be a pc a micro windows while burns krypton technology would be mac where they streamline it and it's very fluid and uniform now wade and use technology it had a lot, some of these elements of both, but it was a little bit more crude, looked a little bit more worn down. Kind of like in Star Wars where the X-Wings weren't necessarily as maintained as they could have been, so you saw a lot of aging to them, a little bit of decay. And uh, also Kryptonian technology looked a little bit more menacing. And with that story, you know, you, see, you saw a nice range in style of the technology of that world, but it was more because we got to see this grab bag of treats from Krypton's history that Luthor generated based on the information that he had. And uh, while Burns' Krypton was emotionless, John's would actually show uh, more deep-rooted emotions, which kind of fits in, because that technology that you see in the John's era, you know, it does. it's based on crystals, and it's almost an organic form of technology, and that really reflects that emotion. They are very organic, but their emotions, they're kind of one with their emotions. And, uh, you know, they're not exactly on the surface. And Wade's Kryptonians, they show a deep emotion, but it seems like they really express it more in art and design, uh, kind of like a Renaissance era. That's not exact, uh, lacking a better explanation, but that's as close as I can get where there was an output. And the Silver Age just showed the restraint in emotion that really would be more of a product of, the, of Xanax than culture. And uh, more the external culture in the real world in comics at that time. Because, you know, we were really dealing with a lot of the out, uh, fallout from the Wortham case and the rise of the uh, Comic Code Authority. Now, the most famous residents of Krypton, beyond Superman, they're undoubtedly the desperate scientists, Jor-El and Lara. The Silver Age Jor-El, he came off as like a genius-level ward cleaver. He's very stoic, very stiff upper lip, and he, he wore, a, you know, the simple headband, and he had a sun emblem on his chest. And his outfit was usually shown as green. And Laura, she was a vamped up housewife to Jorel's super genius. And many retroactive stories would uh, depict Jorel as a former spy with his love. And he just seems to excel at everything. He's very much the, the ideal man in the 50s. Uh, ladies man, man's man, man about town. Except married and uh, faithful to his wife, Laura. And the John Byrne Jorel, however, was an outcast. He was a very socially awkward man who seemed interested in the concepts of love and emotion, which is kind of how he came across Earth, uh, kind of researching that. Now, stemming from the loveless culture that he was in in, in uh, Krypton, Jorel would actually be bucking tradition because he actually loved his wife, Laura, who was depicted in the traditional bodysuit and robe with a really jagged headdress. They were very ornate, and I'm not sure I can't place the form. But she, like most Corp Kryptonians, she did not have Jor-El's emotional depth. And so there's this version was not a love story, but more of an arranged, for lack of a better word, marriage. Because I don't believe they were technically married. It was out of necessity. It was just what happened. Now, Wade and used Jor-El and Laura. They did show emotion, 
but they kind of kept some of the stoic looks of the Silver Age, adding this turmoil and desperation to the story. Um, this Jorel was frightened at the fate of that could have befallen his son, just absolutely scared because he had no definite way to know if the ship that carried his son would even survive or make it to a planet. And this version of Laura actually seemed actively involved and seems to match Jorel step for step. They really seem to be more of a partnership, uh, sort of on equal footing. A little bit like the Jeff Johns Jorel, he was a little bit more self-assured. Uh, he carried his emotions with uh, kind of effortless control, kind of that seamless organic thing I was talking about earlier. Now, this Jorel looks different from most depictions. Uh, most of them, you know, it's a dark hair. He actually looks like Kal-El, uh, maybe a little bit older. And, of course, in the Burns era, Burn era, he's wearing that uh, complete bodysuit and all his faces showing. So you're kind of left to wonder. But this version actually has this great silver hair and this beard. And he looks very, uh, very much very wise and very calm. And uh, he's wearing the same white robes as Brando wore in Superman the movie. But all versions have a reserved quality of Jor-El. All versions of Jor-El have a reserved quality. And a bit of the hero we see in Kal-El, the last survivor of Krypton. Which brings us to the last hope, Kal-El. Now one of these things, that all, one thing that all these origins share is the launch from Krypton to Earth. And there have been small changes between them. But it generally, Kal-El is launched on Earth. In a, originally in a simple blue rocket in the Silver Age aimed at Earth specifically. And sent there as an infant. But in the burn version, it was more or less a crystal egg, which was his birthing matrix, attached to the propulsion engine, which had Superman's fetus, which sounds a little gross, but once Superman touched Earth, he would actually be born here. And in Birthright, the rocket was not expressly aimed at Earth. It was more of a Hail Mary, and the rocket looked similar to the, the rocket originally, the blue with the red tip. But this one had holographic upgrades, and it did show signs of wear and tear, especially, well, when it crashed. But it had that, you know, what I referred to as the X-Wing look. It hasn't been as maintained as you might think. It's showing age. It was kind of crudely put together as hope with a duct tape and a prayer, which is kind of, it adds to the miracle aspect of Superman hitting Earth. And in the Johns area, the ship's a spiky crystal ball, which lands on Earth. Where we find our last essential component, the kindly couple, and this is the one I really feel is the most important. The Kent's involvement in Clark becoming Superman, it varies a little bit from version to version. Now, in the original Silver Age version, we really only see the Kent's unnamed in a brief flashback in which Pa basically delivers uh, the great power with great responsibility speech. Now, Superboy stories would kind of fill in the gap a little, and the John's era would take a lot from those stories. Uh, Jonathan, Marcia, uh, Jonathan and Martha are shown coming up with the concept of Superboy in Secret Origin and actually crafting the costume and the concept and taking a proactive stance, which would actually echo in different ways between Birthright and the Man of Steel versions. Where Jonathan and Martha literally invented Superman in both the Johns and Silver Age version, in the Man of Steel, Clark kind of has the hero thing down. He had been doing it in secret for quite some time. But Jonathan and Martha are able to kind of guide him and focus that into this public persona of Superman. And they've all really come into the concept of Clark Kent. In The Man of Steel, Clark Kent is the person, Superman's the disguise. But it's Jonathan and Martha who come up with that, and vice versa, you know, in the Silver Age, where it's like they really crafted this idea of this, the dual identity for protection, from them protecting him to him protecting himself and the people he loves. And in The Man of Steel, you know, you actually see Pa invent the simple out of just thin air, which I always thought was a little flimsy. In Birthright, Clark actually brings the idea of Superman to the table, but it takes the combined efforts of Jonathan and Martha to see it to fruition, and he's brought the symbol, the Kryptonian symbol of hope, to be his, his flagship. Also in Birthright, you see a more tech-savvy Martha, rather than the elderly versions of the previous incarnations. And Ma had always been presented as a simple homemaker in the past, but with Man of Steel uh, and Birthright and even Secret Origin, she really became a guiding force for the compassionate side of Clark. And Jonathan has developed from this deathbed speech to Clark's image of steadiness, patience, and honor. And really, you see a lot of the really good elements of Superman in the Kents. And they, to me, represent the most essential part of the origin. While Krypton gave him his genetics and powers, Jor-El and Lara gave him life, and the rocket brought him to a home, 
Jonathan and Martha made an alien orphan from a dead world into the greatest hero of them all. And that is universal in each of these origins for a very good reason. So here's to Jonathan Martha Kent for creating the greatest superhero in the DC universe. Or, you know what, any universe. Thank you, Jonathan Martha Kent. And as promised, this week is marks the beginning of Smallville Idol. This will be round one in uh, week one. Now, what, how the way it will work is every week there will be two Superman facing off, beginning with this episode. And the winner of that week, uh, that week's face-off will move on to the next round to face the winner of the next week's. So, you know, with that, we have... We have eight rounds total, so it'll begin this episode, episode six, and run through episode 13, and that will be round one. Now, the entire list, everybody competing, in one bracket, you'll have Bud Collier of the Superman, uh, the Adventures of Superman radio show facing off against Danny Dark, who did the voice on the Super Friends. Uh, Bud Collier, by the way, also did the voice of Superman on the Fleischer Superman cartoons, and as well as New Adventures of Superman from Filmation in 66. And uh, there will also be a round where Christopher Reeve will face off against Brandon Routh. And the Metropolis Superman, Josh Boltinghouse, the current super official Superman in the Metropolis celebration, will be facing off against his predecessor, Scott Cranford. Uh, the Battle of the Superboys, uh, John Hames Newton and Gerard Christopher will face off. Adam Baldwin and Kyle MacLachlan will face off based on their animated appearances in the direct-to-DVD movies. George Newbern and Tim Daly will also be facing off. Dean Cain and Tom Welling will be facing off for TV Superman. And this week's contestants will be Kirk Allen and George Reeves. Kirk Allen played Superman in the original 1940s uh, serial. And George Reeves, of course, played Superman on the Adventures of Superman television series. Now, this is a, this is a feature that, that is completely based on you. So what you would do is go to supermanforever.com and look for the Metropolis Idol page. And there, every week, you can vote until uh, the voting will begin on Sunday when the, idiot, the the episode hits. And hopefully, I won't be this tongue-tied next week. But from then on, it'll be a new face-off every week. And so, you know, whoever wins between Kirk Allen and George Reeves will move on to face-off the uh, winner of next week, next week's face-off, in uh, episode 14, which will be the beginning of round two. So just go to supermanforever.com, look for the Metropolis Idol page, and vote between Kirk Allen and George Reeves between now, Sunday, and Friday night. And then I will have your results next week, and we'll be another face-off for round, for round one, week two. And by the end of this, the goal is to get what the fans believe is the definitive Superman interpretation. Now, we could do this with comics. I haven't decided if I'm going to do that yet, but that gets a little bit trickier. I do know that, you know, by the time this is done, episode 21, we will have a winner, our definitive Superman, and maybe we will move on to Lois, but there will be a gap between those. So go to supermanforever.com and look for the Metropolis Idol page and vote between Kirk Allen of the 1940s Superman serial and George Reeves from the 1950s Superman TV show. It all depends on you. And next week, we will have the results. And that pretty much wraps up episode six of Superman Forever Radio. I apologize for being tongue-tied. Um, you can always leave a review at iTunes if it's bad. That's you know up to you. But if you do like the show, please do review it because it does help the show uh, come up in searches. Um, you can also email me at mail at supermanforever.com, which brings up our contest. Go to the show notes at supermanforever.com for this week's secret code. It'll be done based on the Superman of America code. Now, you can download the decoder card and your own personal membership card to Superman of America right there on the show notes. All you have to do is decode that, and, and then you send me the, the correct message, decoded, and to enter to win super 20 Superman back issues. Now, if you have gaps in your in your collection, any specific issues... Let me know in that email because I'll do my best to get those. Um, hopefully you do more than 20 so I have a chance. And then uh, 
I will, I will also need your shipping information. And if you uh, want to be called by maybe a net handle or something on the air rather than your real name, I will need to know that as well. But yeah, definitely check the show notes because uh, it's free comics. And I'm not even going to charge you for shipping. It's all on me. Um, and I, I, you can also just email it to mail at supermanforever.com. And if you have any thoughts on this week's episode or anything Superman related, uh, go ahead and just give me a call at 703-95-SUPER and leave me a message. Um, it will Anything going through there will be expected to go on the air unless told otherwise. That's in 703-95-SUPER, which would actually be 703-957-8737. You can follow me at Twitter. Um, I, I am at Superman, the number four ever. Superman forever. I'm also on Tumblr at supermanforever.tumblr.com. And visit the message boards at supermanforever.com. And that pretty much wraps up the week for, yeah, for this episode. Practically be going live because I'm actually literally going to uh, push stop and upload it from here. So <laughs> I look forward to seeing you next week. Everything should be a little bit more paced out. And I certainly appreciate you listening. I do really enjoy this, doing this show, and I hope you enjoy listening to it. So I'll see you next week when we continue the never-ending battle. Superman and all related characters are copyright and trademark DC Comics, DC Entertainment, Warner Brothers. This show was for entertainment purposes only, and I do not make a profit.